0: High fives in church are totally appropriate. No problem there. As a matter of fact, you could high five each other during the sermon if that feels good. Let's open in prayer. Uh, Father, um, you indeed are so, so good. And we thank you that you have drawn us to yourself. Thank you for your goodness to us. And Lord, as we look in the world, we want more of your goodness to flow out into the rest of the world. And Lord, we long for that day, that um, that blessed hope that we have of Jesus' return when uh, peace and righteousness will reign in this earth. And until then, Lord, we struggle. struggle against the, the darkness, struggle against the, the evil, the sin. And uh, Lord, we want to pray for um, the people of Ukraine as they continue to struggle against the uh, the invasion of Russian forces. Um, Father, we pray that you would sustain them, that um, there would be great humanitarian outpouring for the people who are victims. Uh, Father, that we would support those who are um, being um who are being persecuted, who are being uh, wronged, those who are crushed. Uh, Lord, those are the people that you sided with. And uh, Father, that includes many in the Russian army who are there um, against their wills, against what they would wanna do. Uh, Just saw a video this morning of a Russian soldier who found out that he was lied to to get him there. And Father, you can't be pleased in in war um, when it's founded on lies and uh, so father we just pray that you would bring uh, an end to this conflict soon father we pray especially for your church in ukraine and uh, the believers who are um, remaining father the the believers who are fleeing and helping refugees lord for the churches in the surrounding communities who are helping receive the refugees lord we pray that um, the mercy of jesus christ would be shown in all that's going on there lord would you turn this disaster to your glory that your people would walk in righteousness in the midst of this. And Lord, I want to pray especially for Vladimir Putin, uh, that he would learn the lesson that Nebuchadnezzar has learned, which is that the the Lord Most High rules in the affairs of men. And he will assign rulers and bring them up and take them down according to his plan. So Lord, would you um, bring a peaceful end to this, we ask. And in the middle of it, may we be the light of Christ to people who are suffering. And uh, Father, we also want to pray for the Strombergs, for Matt and Becca, as they get ready to go uh, to Birmingham and uh, to move to England. Lord, would you be with them in their travels? And uh, Father, again, we just ask you would prepare numerous gospel appointments for them when they arrive, that they would be able to share the love of Christ with people who need to know about you. Um, thank you for the calling that you've placed on their lives and for our, uh, uh, our opportunity to participate with them by, through prayer and financial support. And uh, so, Lord, um, we ask that you would bless their best intentions, their, their desire to uh, lead many to know you. And, Lord, would you be with us now as we turn to your word? Help us to hear, to understand, to de- obey. But, Lord, as we're going to hear from Peter this morning, to delight, to long for, and to find you delightful. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So Wilt Chamberlain, I'm not a basketball first, I'm not a basketball fan. So if I say something and it sounds like he doesn't know what he's talking about, it's because I don't know what I'm talking about. So uh, just, you know, be fair up front. Wilt Chamberlain uh, was seven foot one inches tall, very big guy, 275 pounds. Now, most seven footer basketball players, um, when they're on the court, they're slow and lanky, kind of lumbering. Um, my sister took me to a Pistons game, and I don't remember who they played, but one of the guys on the other team was just around seven foot, a little over seven foot tall, and when he moved up and down the court, he looked like a robot or something. I mean, he was just struggling to move. His whole purpose in being on the court was to look intimidating, and by the way, he did. They'd also move him down to the basket so that he could just catch it and, and dunk it, not wilt, I watched a video this morning of Wilt Chamberlain moving up and down the court for a seven foot one, 275 pound guy, he floated. He looked like uh, graceful on the court, he just moved. He wasn't lanky and, and lumbering at all. Um, he was strong, he was unstoppable. And so when he got the ball and he started going down the court, there's no way to stop him, you, you couldn't interrupt him. He, he just was that good. Um, the only way to defend against Wilt Chamberlain was to foul him. That's the only way you could stop him. And the reason that that worked was if he got the shot, he had a really good chance of making the shot. But when it came to the free throw line, he was terrible. He, the way I heard it described is he could, he could be going for the basket with three people hanging on him and make it most of the time, but set him alone 15 feet from the, the hoop, and he couldn't get the ball in. His, his, his free sh- three. Free throw shot rate was about 40%. So this foul him, and, and you got a chance of him not scoring. However, in the 1961, 1962 season, um, Wilt Chamberlain averaged 50 points per game. That's an unheard of stat, 50 points per game himself. That's not been broken. It's not likely to be broken anytime soon. On March 2nd, 1962, the Philadelphia Warriors played the New York Knicks, and Wilt Chamberlain himself personally scored 100 points that game can you imagine that i couldn't score 100 points if i stood on the court the entire time that a game lasts and threw the ball at the basket i wouldn't make it but he's got all these defenders and he goes down and does it he shot brilliantly from the foul line at that point he got 28 out of 32 free throws the most ever made in a game what happened what changed well what happened was he was coached to um use a little bit of an unorthodox uh, way of sinking a free throw. Most of the time when we do a free throw, we put the ball over our head and do this. He was taught to use a crouching method to toss it from his knees and lob it up. And he did it. And he got 28 out of 32 free throws. It's a better way to throw the basket, to to shoot uh, free throws at the basket. There's less chance of error. You got less things happening. It's a more natural stance. It's, it's a great way to do it. And nobody does it. And as a matter of fact, Wilt Chamberlain played like that for a few games and then went back to the regular way of throwing and his scoring percentage plummeted. He just couldn't get past the old way of doing things. Walt was stuck in the old way of doing it. The old way wasn't working, but he couldn't get past it. He just did that. So this is not true just for very tall, highly skilled basketball players. It's true of pretty much all humans, including Christians. We can get stuck in the old ways of doing things, even when they don't work. The good news is though, what Peter's gonna tell us this morning is, change is possible. He's gonna show us how we can grow, how we can change. And so this morning, we're just gonna look at the first three verses, uh, 1 Peter 2, 1 through 3. And we're going to listen to how Peter is going to tell us how we can change, how we can get past those old ways. So verse 1, Peter starts with, so put away all malice, all deceit, and hypocrisy, envy, and all slander. Now, it starts in ESV with the word so, but that's probably not the best translation. It's probably better therefore. Um, it's, that's the same word could be translated that way. So if, if it's therefore, as in New International Version and, and other modern translations, then what Peter's telling us is, this connects to what he's already taught us. This is more of his application of what he's told us so far. So he's told us, the last section he ended with, the, the command, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Now he's hitting the negative. How do, you, how do you do that? What do you have to do? What do you have to not do to do that? Yeah, I got my, neg- my negatives connected there correctly. So um, I'm not going to rehearse the whole chain of thought that he's, he's told us so far, but just remember how chapter one ended with those three, um, uh, three imperatives. He told us to do three things. In verse th- 13, he told us, prepare our minds for action. This isn't something that you just slide into. You have to prepare your mind for action. You have to get ready for it. In verse 22, he said, purify your soul. Make your soul pure. Get rid of this stuff is what he's going to tell us next. And the, the thing that those two things would, would support and help us to do is, from verse 16, be holy. We're commanded to be holy. And so what we're going to do now is, is he's going to show us how to engage our brains and how to purify our souls so that we can be holy. And to do that, he says, put away. There are things we have to take off. The word uh, is used for removing an article of clothing. Take off your clothes, put away, remove. Take this wrap that's on you and set it aside. Discard from yourself this thing. It's no longer part of who you are as an obedient child of God. So take it off, remove it. And what are, what is it, what are the things he tells us? Well, the first one is malice a malice is a desire to hurt someone with words or deeds the root of the word is actually evil in greek so put that off put that desire to hurt other people with words or deeds put that away the next one is deceit that we have to take off it's a desire to gain advantage or preserve position by lying to others to deceive them to show them things that are not true the next one is hypocrisy, it's, it, in, in English it's singular, but in Greek it's plural, hypocrisies. There's multiple ways to do this one. Hypocrisy is a desire to not be known for what you really are. I, what I really am is like this, but I'm gonna put on a good show. And that's hypocritical, that's, that's not what you really are. The fourth one is envy, we have to put away envy. Envy is a desire for some privilege or benefit that belongs to another and a resentment that the other has it and you don't. That's what envy is, is I like what they have, I don't have it, and that makes me bitter about it. And then the final one is slander. It's the desire for revenge and self-enhancement, often driven by a deep desire to deflect attention away from your own feelings. So what it is, is you could find the worst possible light to put this person in. Or even if it's true, you can slander them by putting it in the worst possible light or saying untrue things about them. And the idea is it's trying to shelter yourself. You're you're trying to hide yourself. And the reason I say that is because I think the the root of all of these is envy. Because all the other ones are facing outward. Envy is one that's inside. It's the one that affects you. I have envy. It is my desire to have something that somebody else has and I lack. Therefore, I'm going to resent them and want their downfall. That's malice, I want evil to happen to them. I wanna hurt them because they have it and I don't. I'm gonna to lie to other people so that it looks like I don't lack, but they do. I'm gonna hide, I'm gonna be hypocritical to cover my own lack. And then there's the danger of telling a truth in a way that will make that other person look bad so they won't, nobody will notice that they have something you don't have. None of this is conducive to brotherly love. <laughs> That was the last command we got is is have brotherly love. Can you have brotherly love if you've got envy and all these other things against other people? It just isn't gonna happen. Can you imagine a community that that is how we act with each other? I don't wanna be part of it. It'd be terrible. Most importantly though, the biggest problem here is not just that it will ruin community. It's not just that it will shatter brotherly love. The most important, the biggest problem here is it will prevent you from growing in the image and the likeness of Jesus Christ. You can't be like Jesus if you're still wearing these clothes. Jesus had no malice. He was a bruised reed he wouldn't break. A smoldering wick he wouldn't put out. No malice. No deceit. He is the way, the truth, and the light. No hypocrisy. They could find no charge to bring against him when they took him to Pilate. No envy. Satan couldn't successfully tempt him with the kingdoms of the world. Jesus had no envy and no slander. He knew the hearts of all men. He didn't have to say things that were not true about people. There's enough bad about us to just announce that and it'd be correct. It's not slander. He knew no sin. He was made like us in every way except sin. So the Bible, the biblical command is for us to grow in his likeness. What did Peter just tell us? Be holy as he is holy. So that's the real danger here is not just the brotherly love. That will certainly suffer, but you will not grow in grace if these are things that are are common to you. So Peter's command is put these things off. The verb for put away is actually the first one in the sentence. In Greek, you can move words around and it still makes sense. It's the first one in the sentence. It's the most important thing that Peter has to say in this. In other words, we should have put away at the very beginning with a huge exclamation point after it. This is what you must do. Put away all of these things. And Peter expects us to do this. He isn't just saying, Wouldn't it be nice if you put these things away? Golly, it'd be so good for you if you just put these things away. He's commanding it. He's telling us, You must do these things. So stop being malicious. Stop lying. Stop uh, your hypocrisies. Stop envying other people and stop slandering others. Go do that. Now let's pray. That doesn't help. It doesn't help to tell people don't do these things. That's not how the human heart works. Like Walt Chamberlain, we're stuck in those old ways. We're going to drift back to them. We're going to want those things. Those are more comfortable. Even though we see these are disastrous, these will not bring me happiness. It's the old pattern in us. And so we have to have the Bible tell us, stop doing that. Take that robe off. Get rid of that. So now Peter is commanding us to change, and he expects us to do that. And he's speaking from experience. How would you like to be Peter and have a written record of every one of your spiritual blunders, inspired by the Holy Spirit, recorded in the most widely published book ever written, one that's being translated into every language on planet earth? How would you like that? How would you like to have it reported that you rebuked Jesus when he talked about being crucified. Don't speak like that. You're the Messiah. That's not going to happen. And then what was Jesus' response? It wasn't pretty. Get behind me, Satan. After promising to die with him if necessary, denying Jesus three times because a young girl, a maid, recognized you. And then a few years after receiving a vision showing food that told you that Gentiles were okay to be with, A few years later, refusing to eat with certain Christians because they were Gentiles. How would you like to have that track record recorded for posterity in the inspired word of God? Well, Peter is not ashamed of that because he knows change is possible. He can do this. He can write this letter to us because he's experienced it himself. So Peter wants us to go from um, the mistakes that he makes to the, the, the blessed growth that we can all experience. That's, that's his command to us. So, okay, Peter, we can grow. How? I need to know how. A friend of mine used to say, it's no good to just stand up and tell people what to do. That's like batteries not included. Peter is not preaching batteries not included. He's about to give us the power. How do we do that? Well, what we do is we have to take advantage of growing in grace. We have to do what we're, we're commanded to do. And so what he's telling us is he's reminding us, remember this started with therefore, looking backwards. Listen to all the benefits you have. According to his great mercy, this is uh, chapter one, verses three through five. According to his great mercy, he caused us to be born again. Benefit number one, he caused you to be born again to a living hope, not a dead one, a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It can't be more sure. Jesus rose from the dead. That's the root and the hope of your being born again. You who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation. God's power is guarding you for salvation. It's a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This is the promise that he's put before you. This is what he's told us. So how do we remove those garments then? If this is the reality of what Peter has told us, then how do we take off those garments? Look at verse 2. Like newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk that you may grow into salvation. That's how. That's how you do it. So we got to clear something up real quick. Minor beside the point, but it, it comes up anyway. Here we're told to like infants desire of spiritual milk in Hebrews chapter five, he says, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again, the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. So are these in conflict? Are these two competing commands? No, they're different uses of a metaphor. So Peter is saying, think of an infant, think of a baby." So you folks who haven't had children yet, this is going to be a stretch. Two o'clock in the morning, you hear this this ear-piercing scream from the other room. And you go running in because the baby's hungry. The baby is desiring milk and will not be satisfied. You can't go in and put on the television and say, here, watch this. You you can't hand him a book and say, here's Harry Potter, do some reading. There's only one thing that is going to silence that child, and that is milk. So Peter is using that illustration, be like that. What the author of Hebrews is saying is grow up, become mature. So don't be like a child, be like an adult. They're actually saying the exact same thing. Peter says, like a child, desire this. And the the author of Hebrews says, you should be growing this way. They're, They're saying the same thing. So that's got that out of the way. You have to pay attention to how a metaphor is used. There's no code words that run throughout the Bible where every time you see it, it means the same thing. One of the biggest mistakes I hear is leaven represents sin in the Bible. Well, in many places it does, but Jesus used a parable and said, the kingdom of God is like a little leaven a, woman, a lady puts in a lump of dough and, it's, and it spreads through the whole thing. Is that sin? <laughs> so don't look for keywords. Don't look for these, these code phrases that are gonna work. It won't work here. Peter is telling us to be like that child. Don't be satisfied with anything else. Regularly desire this. Want this on a a frequent basis. Go search for this. Don't be satisfied with anything else. Time out here, Peter. You're commanding me to long for or desire something. Could I come to you and say, I, I command you, desire a pair of Crocs. Maybe a good purple pair of Crocs. It's not going to work, is it? I, if I, I, people, as a matter of fact, you probably think I'm nuts. You, I've lost my mind. I'm, you're commanding me to like something that ugly. If you like Crocs, I'm sorry. I think they're ugly. Not that they're not comfortable, okay? But so how do I get you to desire Crocs? How do I get you to desire something? Well, advertisers know this. So advertisers, when they want you to desire something, they want you to buy their product. They don't just put up a big sign that says, go buy my product. What they do is they say, go buy my product, and then they package it in the most beautiful way possible. If you buy these jeans, you will be slim and happy and beautiful like this person on the TV screen. And they will fit you perfectly exactly like they do in this picture. If you wear this cologne, you will be as cool as Johnny Depp walking across a lake bed. That's how cool you'll be if you wear this cologne. So they know to get you to buy their thing, you don't just say, here's my thing, and it's great. Here's the technical specs of this. They have to package it in a way that makes it desirable. Something that you want, something that you would desire. You ever notice in um, the, uh, the commercials for new medicines that you see on TV, they list all the benefits. If you have um, this, this weird condition that probably less than a percent of people have, we have a pill for you. And they tell you all about how this will take care of whatever your, your strange disease is. And then when they get to the bad part, by the way, it will make your fingernails explode, cause your teeth to grow upside down, could cause your ears to fall off. What's going on on the screen when they're doing that? They're skiing. They're doing cross country skiing. Or grandma's building a sand fort with the kid or or mom and dad are are doing pottery with the little kids. and, And it could explode your spleen. Isn't that wonderful? What's going on? They want you to desire this thing and they want you to associate it with those positive images. And so you're not paying attention to the fact that it could cause horrible damage to your body. (laughs) Don't worry about that. What Peter's doing, by the way, advertisers are not doing something brand new and and innovative. They're tapping into something that's built into us. That's how we desire pure spiritual milk is because it's shown to us to be something that is desirable. This is something that will make you happy. This is something that will fulfill you. The, the advertisers probably are lying. You know, it's not going to, if I buy that clone, I am not going to turn into Johnny Depp. It just ain't going to happen. I'm not that cool. I have never been that cool. I will never be that cool. Peter's not lying to us. He's not trying to get us to buy something that's going to cost us and make somebody else wealthy. Here's what Peter's doing. Peter is saying, desire the pure spiritual milk, I'm commanding you to desire it. It's good for you to desire that. So then here's the question, what is the pure spiritual milk? Well, the next line tells us what it is. If you have tasted that the Lord is good, the pure spiritual milk is the goodness of the Lord. That's what it is. Now, you have to understand how we get to that. It's not just out there and and go experience it. That's good, but it's not sufficient. The context that this is in is is the scriptures. It's, It's all about being in the Bible. If you have tasted the Lord is good, is in the context of what God's done for you. And so, for example, in verse 23 from last chapter, he says, you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God for all flesh is like grass and all the glory of the flowers is of grass or and all its glories like the flower of grass the grass root withers the flower fades but the word of the lord is forever and this word is the good news that was preached to you so the goodness of the lord is tied up with this idea of the word of the lord they're not separable so what peter does is he goes he says desire the, the the good stuff desire the pure spiritual mouth god's goodness because you've tasted it you're going to want more of it where do you get more of it you get it from the scriptures and peter is going to demonstrate that to us he's not just going to say it he's going to show us he's already been quoting scriptures what he says there is he quotes psalm 34 oh taste and see that the lord is good blessed is the man who takes refuge in him oh fear the lord you see his saints For those who fear him have no lack. The young lion suffers want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Pursue, desire, want that spiritual now. What's coming in the next section is Peter is going to do, he's not just going to tell us to do this. He's going to demonstrate it for us. He is going to quote Isaiah 8 and 28, Psalm 118, Deuteronomy 7 and 10, Exodus 19 and Hosea 1. In other words, he's going to push in front of us. Here is God's goodness that you have tasted of, and it's rooted in the scripture. So when I tell you, please grab a read through the Bible in a year program, I'm not doing that because I don't know, I'm a mean guy or I'm going to make any money off of this or um, it's just a thing pastors are expected to do, so go do it. I'm doing it because it's actually good for you. I want you to taste and see that the Lord is good. I want you to pursue, to, to long for, to desire the pure spiritual milk. And so when you're reading through the scriptures this year, as you're going through, watch for that. How is God good? Especially when you get to like first kings, first and second kings. It gets you a little seasick, right? There was a king and they worshiped Yahweh. Yay! And then there was a bunch of terrible ones. And ugh. And then you go up another hill and down another hill. What's going on there? How do I see God's goodness in this? God waited. And he was patient with his people. And he, he, he put up with them for about 400 years before he said, that's enough. Time for exile. And when he sent them into exile, he promised them, 70 years and you're coming back. This is discipline. While they're in exile, what does he send them? Daniel. Esther, Nehemiah, Ezra. He doesn't just desert them. So you can look at that and say that's a messy thing. That's that's terrible. And yet find God's goodness in it. The one that's really tough is the book of Judges. It just starts bad and goes straight downhill. Until the end, we're back in Sodom and Gomorrah. How do I find God's goodness in that? Because there was no king in Israel, and every man did what he wanted. Then you get to first Samuel, and what happens? there's a king in Israel, and he's going to lead God's people. You can find God's goodness in the Bible when you look through it. And so that's what he wants us to do. That's what Peter is going to demonstrate. He's going to walk through us, walk us through a handful of scriptures, and he's going to say, here, look, this is the pure spiritual mouth. Desire that. Seek that. So that's how you can actually be commanded to desire something. This morning on the way in, I was listening to Thy Mercy, My God. It's written by John Stoker in 1776. It's a beautiful hymn. Uh, Cadman's called it, it. The first verse is, Thy mercy, my God, is the theme of my song, the joy of my heart, and the boast of my tongue. Thy free grace alone from the first to the last hath won my affections and bound my soul fast. You have, by your free mercy, bound my affections. I can't think of anything more beautiful. So what is the goal of this? What are we supposed to do? We're supposed to long for this pure spiritual milk. We're supposed to have done that because we have tasted. We know that the Lord is good. And where does it take us? The last verse, that by it, you may grow up into salvation. That by pursuing, by desiring the pure spiritual milk, you may grow up into salvation. Notice that he does not say that by doing it, you may be saved. That, that would be counter to everything he's told us so far. He, he's already explained to us how we got saved by grace. He says, you, God has caused us to be born again. By the power of God, we are being guarded through faith for salvation, obtaining the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. It is not saying if you don't desire these things, you won't be saved. So desire him and then God will save you. That, that's counter to everything he said. You have been born again. Now you're a new baby. Desire what God is giving you. Desire what he's offering you. So if God commands us to love something, he commands us to desire it, that we might grow into salvation, that we might be more like who he's commanded us to be. How do we get there? Well, the promise is God not only pr- commands it, he grants what he commands. That was, that was uh, Augustine's famous prayer. Lord, demand what you will and grant what you demand. What a beautiful saying, what a beautiful thought. God will do this. Augustine was richly biblical when he was saying that. So Philippians chapter two, beginning in verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So God is commanding you, go do this, and then he is at work in you to will, so that you will desire this, so that you will do it. He is at work in you to work, uh, to will and to work for his good pleasure. So what he's commanding us is to desire the one thing that is most desirable in all the world. Can you think of anything better than what God has done for us in Jesus Christ? the MacBook is going to fade. It's going to be obsolete. That new Tesla eventually will not work. And in 10,000 years will be dust. The, the, the position at work only is as good as you are. And when you're too old to work, it's not your position anymore. I mean, it's just what else can compete? You, you have to have a long view on this. That was, that was Chamberlain's problem is he didn't take the long view and go, what would my stats be in four years if I keep doing it this way? He couldn't. He said it made him feel like a sissy. Somebody else called it a grandma throw to, to shoot a free throw from your knees. He couldn't take the long view. We're supposed to take the long view. We're supposed to look at what God is doing. So he commands us, desire this. He commands us, grow in salvation. He commands us, grow in grace. But he doesn't then sit on his hands and go, now, good luck with that. He's provided things for us to do that. He's provided his word. What was the command for brotherly love about? He's, com- he's given you a community of believers who will help you grow in grace, who help you grow up to be like Jesus Christ. And it's a slow process, I'm sorry. As one the, somebody asked me, what was the greatest thing you've learned about ministry? And I said, it's very slow. It's just the way it is, is we're, we're, we are very complicated creatures. But the good news is, change is possible. It can happen. God has laid out these things for you. He's given us these things. He's done these things throughout history. And then he says, not delight in them. Just find them glorious, find them desirable, and I'll take care of the rest. The context he's given that in is his written word. If you neglect this, if you go, I'm not going to do that, your free throw percentage is going to sink. Even if somebody else tells you that's a sissy thing. The reality is his word is there to encourage us. And we're going to see that as we continue through. Peter is going to point us back to his word over and over again and say, this is here to help encourage you. This is here to build you up. This is how God conforms us to his image. This is one way. We don't have a command anywhere in the Bible that says thou shalt read through the Bible in a year. But you have things like this saying, desire the pure spiritual milk. You're not gonna do that if you're completely ignorant of the word. So spend time in it, delight in it, take notes in it, write in your Bible, I dare you. A lot of people are like, I can't. I was given a Bible with big, huge margins so that I could write in it. So find one of those. Delight in it, soak in it, drink it in. When you get up in the morning and you sit down with your Bible, think for a second of the image of a baby who's just woken up. And is screaming at the top of their lungs. There's only one thing that's going to satisfy that baby. Mom's milk. So we sit down with the word and think I am that baby. And here is the milk that my mother has provided. My father has given me this. And, and the point is not just so that I will be satisfied. I'll find some you know happy verse. It's to feed my soul so that I might grow up to be like my big brother, Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the pure spiritual milk of your kindness that you've poured out on us. Lord, thank you for the pure spiritual milk of the incarnation of Jesus Christ who came to cancel our sin. Lord, thank you for the pure spiritual milk of the word of God attesting to all of these things. Lord, thank you for the pure spiritual milk of a history with the people of Israel being led and guided by your patience and your kindness, the presence of your Holy Spirit speaking through the prophets. And all these things were written down for our benefit. Lord, thank you for the pure spiritual milk of a community of believers who will encourage and challenge, rebuke, and and hold up each other in the word of God and in obedience to the faith. Lord, thank you for the pure spiritual milk of Jesus Christ, our big brother, the one who will be who we will be conformed to the image of, who we will grow into for the spiritual head of the church, for the pattern of humanity for all of eternity. Lord, cause us to desire the pure spiritual milk. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.